forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. First up is Rachel Bloom, who's the executive producer, writer, songwriter, and star of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And the co-creator, executive producer, and showrunner, Aline Brosh McKenna. (laughs) And finally, he's a TV and comic book writer, moderator, Ben Blacker. (laughs) This is a good turnout. Hi, everybody. It's Saturday, practically the crack of dawn. I'm happy to see all you. Oh, boy. Who else was partying last night? Woohoo! Uh-oh. So this is it, y'all. Yeah. We're we're at the end. Um, this is the end of the movie. I was yeah. I was going to ask whoa, you something whoa. leading, but instead I'm just going to ask you how you feel. How do you feel? Okay, I'm going to be completely honest. So last night we watched uh, the penultimate narrative episode at my house, and I've for the past four years had viewing parties at my house. It's very special. And last night was the last one because next week we're going to do a thing at Aline's. And um, and we have a new pool, so we were going crazy. And one of the cast members uh, really likes to bring around these uh, weed mints. Um, and, uh, had, I usually have just one last night. I had two. No, so uh, I I woke up uh, a couple hours ago. I'm still a little high, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) didn't intend for that to happen, but, uh, you're getting just the, the littlest glimmer of, of high Rachel. So maybe I'll say some profound shit. That wasn't it. That wasn't the profound shit. Oh God. Yeah. Uh, Aline, how are you feeling about the end of this You know, we're not in a state of it feeling over because um, we literally, the concert special was finished on Wednesday, Thursday. It's It's still got got some stuff being done to it. And then the documentary, I don't know if you guys know about this. We made a documentary about the making of the finale. Um, It's on CW Seed right now. And so that was a long process. And that was uploaded last night at 10 p.m., but literally left the edit bay less than 24 hours before that. Um, and so, honestly, we we have not had any... We went straight from making the finale to making a concert special and a documentary, which are two things we've never done before. So we haven't had downtime, and actually we're mixing the finale this afternoon. And then we will... And then I think once we air, and all of those things air that it'll start to feel like it's in the past. Every time I see see it on screen, I'm starting to feel an achiness. That's the only way I can like, it's not like a cryiness, it's like a, um, it's a sad achiness. Like when we were watching Love's Not a Game last night, last night we did our final group number of the series and it's probably like the biggest group number we've ever done. Um, it's kind of like a Frank Lesser style gangster 50s number and, um, uh, and watching that I got very emotional. Um, let's talk. Uh, step back for a minute and talk about coming into this final season and, and circling stories and figuring out what stories to tell in this final season. What hadn't you uh, addressed about Rebecca? What stories were left to tell about this character and the world she inhabits? Well, I'll tell you something that it might be interesting for, for folks. How many, how many people here are writers? Great. Oh. So, this is a um, different conversation. Great. <laughs> 
So one of the things that's interesting is that obviously I had a lot of experience writing movies and I had a little bit of experience writing pilots, but it was 20 years ago. And Rachel um, comes mainly from sketch and animation and musicals. So we had not really done a show or created a show. So we created our own ways of working. So I always think of like folk art, like somebody who's just like, well, I've got all these battle caps and I can make a beautiful structure with these. And that's really how we, so we built all seasons, all the seasons by talking a ton. Um, Thank God, you know, our first few uh, real work sessions where we had Allie taking notes, Allie Shouten taking notes, and I have that somewhere. Um, but really after that, we just, we talk and talk and talk and talk. So in the hiatuses between the seasons, Rachel and I get together at an office or in a hot tub or over a meal or wherever, and we just we just shoot the shit about what we think should happen. Now what happened this year was we beautifully, we've gotten better at this over time, right? We've had three seasons of doing this. So this time we just lovingly laid out a beautiful 13 episode structure um well in advance we were like we are <laughs> so are prepared right. for the final we are more season. prepared than we've ever been we were so thorough oh uh, it was so thorough and the board was beautiful and it oh. had lots of song ideas on it it was gorgeous and sexy and then we were told that we needed to do 18 and we so we asked them if one of them could be a concert special and they said yes we tried to get the doc to be one of them too but that did not fly um so we had four more scripted episodes to do than we thought and that uh took us a while to like digest that that was a reality and then to translate it so rachel and i had knew about that and the room had already started i think yeah, I mean, had the room started when we? F- yes. yes, and even because and and you were a very hardline. We're not doing more episodes. Yes, and I was like, I mean, it means yeah. we get more time together, and we'll figure it out. And you were like, absolutely not. And then they were like, you have no choice. Um, See, we we normally wrap at Christmas, and it's really like you work really fucking hard. You come in at May, you start the writers' room. You all are dead by Christmas. You all collapse, and then you start seeing pictures of people's feet on beaches. And it all like made sense to me. And the idea that we would come back and do another two months when we hadn't been expecting it. But yeah, Rachel was down down for more. So and I, and it was also because we had been so prepared. So you know, the writers' room was thrilled. I mean, they, it's more episodes for them, and they weren't actors anywhere. were actors, actors were, were thrilled. thrilled. It's, that means preschool. That means yeah. Is not for for a kid, not for them. And I think it was actually good that I was resistant because I had to be talked into every extra episode. So, <laughs> and what's funny is there there are episodes that we w- probably wouldn't have done. And I was talking to Vela about this last night, and she's like, "Oh, you just named my favorite episodes." There, there are two of our. I mean, definitely two of the best episodes of the season. I think we wouldn't have done if it weren't for the extension, which is. I realized also because you're thinking of nine and eleven. I'm thinking of. Oh no, I didn't think of nine. So I I'm think thinking of six. six. So six, six is nine. trapped in a car, which is yeah. one of the more like intimate episodes we've done. It almost feels like a little indie film. Um, nine are the cat vaginas. We wouldn't have done that, I don't think, because it's not a plot propulsive episode. Um, and then there's eleven, the rom com episode, which doesn't have a lot of. It, narrative content pop, either it, exactly yeah. and so like it was and then great. I would say the other one is probably the episode where her little brother comes back which is something we had been trying to do and I think would probably have been a B or C in another episode but what was kind of fun about it was we he in the, in the first part of the season she's sort of making her peace with all the stuff that's happened to her and we always owed the brother 
But then there was this added element of the brother being a showbiz kid. And that was a nice way for us to start to introduce that. And also for, for Rebecca to try and parent someone the way she had not been parented. So I love all those episodes. And also what's, ni- what's nice about them is I think you can drop into those four episodes without having watched the rest of the series and understand what's happening. It's actually Where, very true. Yeah. yeah, some of the other ones are very are, are a lot more plotty. I think if you watched episode eight, you'd be like, confused about so confused yeah or 12 you know one's the ones that are really in the especially the ones that are in the romance linkage or the mental health linkage but those those extra four actually ended up being delightful but they don't they don't quite lift out either which is really nice i mean they give you more depth to these characters including some of the characters who don't always get to have the a story yeah and i think the big challenge was we because when we when we uh, arced out the 13, we knew that uh, Greg was coming back. Um, by the way, you were just going to spoil the entire... Like, if you haven't seen the rest of the series... Everything either. except the finale yeah. is game. Um, we right knew now. that Greg was coming back, and so that was like a logical kind of midpoint where it was like, okay, we're going to deal with some more kind of internal episodes of her trying to grow, you know, two steps forward, one step back, and then we're going to bring in Greg and really ramp up this rom-com element again. And then when you extend that to 18 or 17 suddenly everything gets pushed back. And so suddenly now you have slightly more more episodes because you don't want to spend too much time on the rom-com and lose the propulsion of what we wanted to do. So then you have, I mean, seven episodes of someone of, of a much kind of more patient, internal, slower pace than we normally do. Right, and some people don't, some people like those episodes a lot where there's less conflict and it's more of her like making peace with her mother and her brother and um, and the sh- I, one of my favorite episodes of the year that's sort of a, a little bit of a dark horse is episode two which deals with shame because she gets out of prison in episode one and I think we could have just had her launch back into all this recovery but shame is such a important part of her mental illness and just something that we don't talk enough about as a culture and just her her waking up to the fact that like I'm embarrassed and that she's also been embarrassed embarrassed online um and so I you know that episode I I I think is actually and then we you know as one does we made it about Halloween because she's haunted. It fell on. It fell near Halloween, and so shame. The idea of ghosts were very interesting to us, and then we wrote a monster mash number because, as one does. Let me ask. You brought up uh, the rom com element of the show, and this is something I've I've been so interested in, in seeing you all tackle for the entire run of it. The deconstruction of, but also the reliance on romantic comedy tropes, which, and it feels feels like it sort of comes to a head in that Nathaniel episode, too, where you get to just lay it all out. Um, I'm curious to hear about your personal uh, relationships with romantic comedies, and then the conversations that go on in the room about what can be con- deconstructed, but what needs to be there. Well, I know, I mean, I know a lot about mine. What What is yours? Well, I, I actually... I love romantic comedies. I think like I'm more of a product of the younger stuff, like Ever After, um, She's All That, um, Never Been Kissed, that that kind of stuff. And the way that I took in those rom-coms was the same way that I take in musical comedy. Because I, I kind of see the emotions of those rom-coms as synonymous with a lot of musicals when you watch them. There's this sweeping love story and you want to wait for that final kiss. And, and I... Um, they're very emotional, very escapist for me in a way of... Uh, I have an active fantasy life, like my character, and I think that 
not only does it hook into the more emotional side of me, but when I was going through romantic tumult, tumult, well, super high. Yeah. Uh, great. Uh, you're not wrong. When I was going through romantic troubles, I would kind of outsource some of my emotion over those relationships to watching rom-coms. And then occasionally I would justify my obsession with the media. So like, I, I mean, I've ranted about this before, but you know, sex in the city, which we, I think we can all say is a rom-com. I think it was really socially irresponsible for uh, her to end up with big. Uh, I, I, because I was in high school when that happened and I was a big fan of that show. Shouldn't have been watching it as a high schooler, but whatever. And you watch that show and she wants, she ends up with this guy who's been terrible to her the whole time and never really reformed in a meaningful way. Didn't go to therapy. Didn't let, really look inside himself. Just kind of swept her off her feet in Paris. I at the time was in, in love with a guy who was treating me pretty badly and I went, oh, you know what? Carrie could wind up with Big. Maybe he's just my Big. And look, I'm not saying that all art has a responsibility to worry about the 17-year-old Rachel Blooms who are still gonna love the, the drummer. Um, uh, beware of the drummers. But, but I, that always sticks with me and I think that um, it, that's definitely informed us doing the show of making sure 17-year-old Rachel Bloom is going to be okay. Yeah, my, my history with them is a little more complicated because I came in wanting to write 30s and 40s screwball comedies. And what's interesting about those is the women are incredibly emancipated. They're incredibly equal. 99% of the movie is that. And then some weird thing happens where she gets hit over the head with a frying pan at the end. But I always thought, oh, I'm, I want to make those, but without the, the incredibly retro thing at the end. And I have written every type of, so the first movie I got made was Three to Tango, which is extremely contrived. It's one of those, like in our rom-com episode, where someone pretends to do a something. <laughs> and if you, for those of you who are writers, if, if you write a movie where someone pretends to do a something, which is what happens in 27 Dresses also, there will be a scene where someone has to say to them, oh my God, you pretended to be a so-and-so. And those are a nightmare to write in an original way. So I was always trying to revisit, like for me, Three to Tango, I was trying to write a blend of, of I, was, I was trying to write The Apartment. I was trying to write about a guy who's trying to keep his job by, by doing this. And I was also trying to write Tootsie. So someone who learns about his deficiencies as a man by being a gay man. The movie, the director and I had different sensibilities and that's not what that movie is. And I remember a friend of mine said, if I close my eyes and I can hear you, I can hear what you were trying to do. But when I watch the movie, it's not quite there. And I tried to do that uh, many times, and then somehow it would always end up being kind of like, so Three to Tango, I did the best I could with that director. Laws of Attraction, I've only seen it once through splayed eyes. I'm not really sure what happens in that one. 27 Dresses, I wanted to, it to end like the, more like The Graduate. That's absurd. They they talked me out of that and they were correct. I you know if you I was doing a weird thing of like trying to invite myself to this party and then like inst, you know and it was like the Oscars and I was going to wear a bathing suit and flip flops. It just wasn't you know and I kept trying to figure out a way to to have these more sort of I mean for lack of a better word feminist values in the movies and I'll, truly the place that I was most able to do that was Devil Wears Prada where no one gave a shit who she ended up with. No one ever asked me about it. Yeah. And then when I did Morning Glory, J.J., who produced that movie, also, no one, the, the love story in that is, is, I started to be able to write things that I call and a man movies, where like the, rom the rom romance thing happens, but then, and, and you get a man. 
Um, but with Crazy X, with my blending with Rachel's sensibility, we really were able to take the piss out of it. What I was trying to do was like do it, but with a different tone or slightly different. But what with Rachel's and I, what the blend of sensibility is like, we're spoofing it. We're really, so we're doing the run to the airport, but it's a disaster. And then she's told you're an asshole. Like we did a lot of the tropes but I mean, they also done work all of them tropes yeah so that's, that's, that's what i was thing. gonna say so david frankel who directed prada calls that um have your cake and eat it yes. so devil wears prada is both a deconstruction of the idea that you need to be skinny and fabulous and a complete reification of the idea that you need to be skinny <laughs> and fabulous and it's a critique of being a bitch at work but it's a celebration of being a bitch right so it and, and crazy x is you know, both a deconstruction of these things and then a complete performance of them. The episode that aired last night is a pretty much straight up rom-com without a lot of deconstruction. And episode 11, I will say, well, what I loved about that was it was a man. Mm-hmm. And it was a man living that narrative. A man seeing like, oh my God, I'm, I'm being told I'm ugly. And it's like trying to erase Scott's gorgeousness was very hard. But like, the gorgeous guy being made to feel ugly. And, and the theme of that was really him being her. Um, so that was a different, a slightly different talk, but the whole series we've Rachel and I and the writer's room, that's why it was great. We had people in the room who really were rom-com experts and would say, well, this is, and Rachel is actually so, so good at detecting tropes. Yeah. That's the thing is for, for what I, what knowledge I had of like the rom-coms, you know, I know enough rom-coms and, and I also love, I, I love tropes and spotting those patterns. I mean, something that I just realized is you and I, and I think this is something we've said before, but we are both semi-experts in our different genres, right? I'm musical musical theater, musical comedy, rom-coms, and we also have an emotional reason to rebel against those. You wrote in romantic comedies for so long and you wanted to break out and no one would let you. I was a musical theater kid who realized, oh God, all these musicals are bad. What am I doing with my life? And we did one, epi- we did, I mean, the whole series has really been the deconstruction of the rom-com and then we did an episode 14 which was, really spoke to Rachel's awakening in a really direct way. But I think we both were working in genres that have important female characters, tell very compelling stories, but are kind of male gaze mm-hmm. in a way. Those rom-coms that I was doing were still male gaze and I just wanted to say one funny thing which is, Whenever I was telling Rachel about my experience making movies, Rachel once said to me, every story you're telling me is about you were trying to make something one way and then it got jizzed all over. <laughs> and I was like, that's, that's what it is. And sometimes, you know, there were a couple times there where it didn't. And there's, I've written a couple, you know, particularly um, Prada and Morning Glory that I would say like are very much and yeah, but are, are pretty much. Totally. What- some of the stories you've told me about, I won't name any yeah. specific, but the way that men have twisted your arm behind your back to change the story you're taking over the story it's uh, fucking sucky and that's what's great is that it it took and this i i've spoken about a lot like rachel doesn't give a shit she just wants to do what she wants to do and i really absorbed that you know there were we didn't it, i got free i got free to do all those things and the thing was so explicit that we were doing it yeah. Does that make sense? Like, there's nothing about you 27 dresses it, right? that's a spoof. So, well, how would you upend it? <laughs> Whereas our thing from the beginning was a spoof. I mean, you start the way you start the. I mean, one of the the thing I miss the most from the pilot is when he breaks up with her. As she says, "But I love you. You you put your penis in my mouth," and we had to cut that. Remember? Yeah. You know what? We aired. 
at remember at the rap party we aired before the blooper reel uh, we found the Showtime. We, we went in the Showtime edit and we dug out some of the dirtier scenes. Maybe I'll video those on my computer with my phone and post them on Twitter because <laughs> that's the only way I know how to do it now. Yeah, because what are they going to? No one's going to sue me. But yeah, I'm literally. But you put you. I, you oh, I get very explicit. But you put your penis in my mouth. You put your penis in my mouth is the tenth line of the pilot. Yeah, and and then I say, "Shut up, you stupid cunt." And then she says, "Shut up, you stupid cunt, to your mother." And I remember writing those scenes with Rachel, and Rachel will tell you, like, I kept p- pitching her very outrageous things because I felt like the shackles have been taken off because when you write conventional rom-coms, you're just being told likable, 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 and the things that are not likable in women is, like, they're messy, they have periods, they have orgasms, they have opinions, they don't hew to to receive doctrines, they don't they don't fall in love with this guy just because he's handsome. I mean, I've written movies where, you know, somebody's supposed to look across the room and see some guy, and then all of a sudden, all of their behavior changes, and they've never spoken to each other, and it's very, very hard it's to It's not love. how women fall in love, too. I mean, nine times out of ten, that's a male gaze thing. It's, 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 basically inflicting the male gaze upon a woman. So a man can look across a room and see, and I am going to generalize about men, uh, obviously. Um, but I think that more of, of the male gaze is, and this is like biology or whatever, that a guy can look across a room and see an object of his attraction, whatever gender that may be, and instantly go, oh, I'm in love. But women, at least myself and you and other women I've talked to, it, it, we don't like see a hot guy and go like, oh, that guy. I mean, if anything, when I see like an alarmingly hot guy on the street, especially like if his shirt is all ripped and you can see a lot of his abs, I'm like, what a tool. <laughs> I'm like, put on a real shirt. We get it. You go to the gym. You're weird. I don't like really trust like super hot people. Have you seen your show? Okay. No, I, well, I mean, spoofing. again, let's argue again, against the hotness of, of some of the people on the show. But again, I w- what I would say is like, because we're spoofing it, we lean really hard into Vinny is ripped and Scott is gorgeous. And but we're always taking the piss out of it. And it's very hard to find the right tone to wrap around these stories. And there was something about my tone and Rachel's tone that just blended into this thing, which it is the thing and it isn't the thing. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the things I love as pop culture things, they are the thing and they aren't the thing. Is broadcast news a romantic comedy? Maybe. You know, what is Jerry Maguire romantic comedy? I don't know. Like, you know, all these things are really something they're, they're doing. They're, they're providing you the surface pleasures but they're giving you something else. Well, they're smarter and deeper than the framework that's provided by the things that came before, right? Um, while you're on the topic, uh, you know, we had uh, some great questions from Twitter, and thank you guys for, for tweeting that stuff out. But um, uh, one that came up was a question about how to have humor about mental illness. Because the show is a comedy. Uh, and it's a very funny show, but it tackles some big ideas and some deep ideas um, so someone on Twitter wanted to know, you know, how can you present comedy about mental illness without stigmatizing it? How can you be true to the nuances of mental illness um, while still sort of having to simplify it for, you know, a 40-minute TV show? I, mean, I think you guys do it really well. I think first do your research if it's not something you've had a personal experience with. And I think that the key to it is not othering. Is, is from the beginning, this was always a first-person show. It's why I hate it when someone calls the show My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. And I, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't hate it just because it's like learn the title of a show. I hate she it. Hates. Oh, I hate it. If you do it, I, 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 
I will openly correct hosts of their own talk shows on air. I'll be like, nope, that's not the name of my show. And the reason, well, the reason is because my other's her. It presents her as an other. It presents it from Josh Chan's point of view, whoever, and looking at her saying, isn't she crazy? That is not what the show is. The show is deconstructing tropes from a woman's perspective. Inside. And so if if you think of something like Something Wild or Bringing Up Baby or Ball of Fire, it's like, especially Bringing Up Baby and Something something Wild, they're... Is that the, it's the, that's the Jonathan Demme movie, right? My brain isn't broken. Bring um, a baby? That was the one? Something wild. Yeah, because I was going to say, Bring a baby was the, the tiger one, right? Yeah, but she's mentally ill. Yes. And so is the woman in Something Wild. And to me, because the crazy ex-girlfriend was an idea that I'd had, those are other, they're objects. What's up, Doc? Same movie. They're, they're kooks. They come in. They mess with your life. They're, they're what about Bob? They're, they're agents of chaos. But you don't fucking know anything about them. They're always hot. Right. But there isn't very sexual and men are attracted to that crazy energy. But what does it feel like to live inside that? When you get inside that, when you get inside that um, space of someone who's a wrecking ball, which is what Rebecca is for better or for worse, that's what we wanted to get at. And, and Rachel's right. We did a lot of working with um, therapists and books and consulting to make sure that we augmented our understanding of, of those things. What also comes from just to say my own experience, especially in the beginning, um, we hadn't really like zoomed in. We hadn't honed in on the on the BPD diagnosis, and so a lot of first season is. I mean, it's the writing, but also it's uh, it's like heightened versions of things that I've had and, and things I've gone through. So I think that also personal experience, and then Jack Dolgen, who is an EP of the show, and he's been my songwriting partner for a while. He's had his own experiences with suicidal ideation and depression. So I think also having a personal experience and coming at it from that that point of view and I think it's a lesson for any writer's room too that if you're if you want to write about a topic and it hasn't happened to you maybe find a writer who it has happened to so they can we also have an extraordinarily compassionate writer's room I mean we really do and they wanted to get everything right and so you know we would pass out books and reference materials and and put them on the on the thing and people go home and read them or read articles everybody really wanted to be accurate what, uh, Rachel, what is your relationship to Rebecca? I mean, I think you are very open as an actor and as a writer. Um, and, you know, putting so much of yourself in that, especially in the early seasons, how does that relationship evolve? How are you protective of you? How is she, of her? How is she an outlet for you? Yeah, I'm very protective of her. Uh, she, I don't know. I guess, like, if I had to name it right now, she almost feels like this twin sister oh did you see us not yet (laughs) Uh, so but I know that probably is a scary thing to say Uh, she feels almost like I don't know she feels like a like a twin or maybe like a slightly younger sister in my head but there's so much of my personality in her I mean I'll say that uh, I got quite sick when we were filming the finale I just got I got the worst cold I was laid out and the final day the thing that got me through in addition to Dayquil (laughs) was this is my last time to, I'm going to get a little woo-woo, this is my last time to inhabit Rebecca. It's almost like Rebecca exists in this universe. I open a door to that universe. I climb inside her body. I make some decisions for her that she might not love, and then I leave her body. And so there's a part of me that's like, this is my last day to send her off. And so the way that I see Rebecca is, I'm almost seeing her post-Crazy X already, where I wish her the best and I have no idea what she's doing 
I'm not we here to fuck up her life. We could do an amazing supercut of um, moments from dailies of Rachel going, I'm Rebecca, I'm Rebecca, I'm Rebecca, I'm Rebecca. <laughs> when she's pivoting from being Rachel Bloom producing and talking to people and checking her phone about a thing and it's due and legal is called and you need to change this, you know, S&B, blah, blah, blah. And then she has to go and act. And so we have like a lot of dailies start with Rachel going, I'm Rebecca, I'm Rebecca. <laughs> yeah, because I'll literally be on the phone with Patricia from Standards and Practices being like, we can, wait, so we can say you're a dick, but not say, look at his dick? Okay, I gotta go. Hold on. What do you mean I have borderline? Like, it's, it's just so fucky. Uh, Elaine, I'm I'm curious about your answer to the same question. You know, what is your relationship to Rebecca? There's so much of you and the writers in there too. Well, Rachel has seen me cry about Rebecca Bunch numerous times. I, I have uh, I think that my I have this enormous um, concern and maternal concern for Rebecca that is partly attached to Rachel, but at some point just kind of drifted off like an iceberg, especially when she was very ill. So like when we were doing the, um, the end of the movie song, I was trying to talk to the songwriters because I, I don't participate so explicitly in the songwriting process for the most part, but I'm, I'm a, I'm sort of the, the doula to the song process and I'm around them and I talk to them about it and I say what I think the song, I think the song should be, and I provide sort of a layman's writer story version of what I want what I think the song could be. So we were talking about end of the movie and I started to talk about how this is the show saying to her, you're going to be okay and it's going to keep going and don't worry about it. And look at all these other people in your life. They're doing well and you're going to get there. And I started sobbing at the meeting. Um, And then I will say, you know, we have some writers channel Rebecca more than others in the room, which is pretty hilarious. Um, Some, like one of our writers, Alana, is a theater kid beyond all theater kids, beyond anything you can imagine. And so she is, she really channels that part. And then we have ones that really were crazy exes in their life. And um, so different people, I think, are connected to different aspects of it. But I have a very maternal love for Rebecca Bunch that actually exists beyond my maternal love for Rachel Bloom. Um, you... We've talked a lot about the writers, and Aline, you and I have talked in the past about them. Um, I'm curious to hear, you know, when you all came into this endeavor uh, in season one and it came away from Showtime, you know, it was the two of you, you had a few collaborators who had been on from the very beginning, but you had to bring in a bunch of new voices. And I'd love to hear over these four years what you've learned about the process of writing, uh, being in that writer's room, but also about the character of Rebecca or any of the other characters that you didn't expect coming in in that first season? You know, the, the, I've, I heard Rachel had to go. We got picked up. It was a last-minute fire drill beyond. So we got picked up, and Rachel got shipped to New York to become to start promoting the show. And we and everybody was picked. We were late pickup, and everybody was hiring for network shows, and it was madness. So Rachel met most of the people after we'd hired them. One of the writers, Renee Goubet, was also Rachel already knew, but most of the people I met, Rachel was like, "I trust you." It's interesting. The writers' room clicked in pretty pretty quickly. I would say it took a few months of really like because we were also figuring out what we were doing mm-hmm. truly in terms of the voice of the show and the process and we all worked together and they gave us a lot of feedback and we encouraged a lot of feedback about, you know, lunch is 1230. It's not one, you know, all those really important writers and things. The most challenging thing to maintaining the tone of a television show are directors. And I was talking to Stuart about this last night because we have one, st- one director who directed 12 out of 61. 
So just so you guys, I don't, I don't think I had fully chewed this over in my brain before we started the show. So you start the show, you have two months with this writer's room or three months with this writer's room. Rachel's there. We're building the tone. We're writing episodes. We had six episodes written when we started shooting the first season. Amazing. Well, partially because we'd already written t- yes. two of those episodes for show. That's right. So what was great, the writers came in. We had, a, we had a full pilot shot. Rachel and I had written two additional scripts. We had written a giant Bible for the first season. So the writers had a lot of material, and they had already seen the pilot. They were a fan of Rachel. So we got, I would say sensibility-wise, by the time we had those six scripts, writers room, with, you know, with margin of error, we kind of knew what we were doing. But the, the directors, some of them we had not met because we, it was such a last-minute fire drill. Yeah. And directors don't work with you. They come in from who knows where. They start prep. You sometimes have never met them before. And you have to explain the tone of the show to them over the course of that week while we're writing and shooting and editing. Mm. And then right before they start shooting, I do a tone meeting where, our, you know, and you, it's a two, two-and-a-half-hour tone meeting It's been even longer than that where I talk them through every page. But there's always stuff that you assume. It's always the things that I thought were so clear. Mm. And then that was the toughest thing. That was the blind date, uh, blind dating. Mm -hmm. Because we would have someone come in, and whether they fit in with the tone of the show or not, that was the biggest, biggest challenge, honestly. And just a separate tip. Uh, for anyone out there who wants to, who's doing comedy, um, just hearing what you're saying about, oh, I thought that was so clear. Um, I think that the most frustrating thing when you've created a thing is uh, there's a joke or an idea that you think is so clear and then everyone starts asking questions that have nothing to do with the joke. And so I think that it's important as writers to, so I started before all the music videos because sometimes the the choices the directors made would just be way off. It's like, no, 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 that's not the right choice for the music video at all. We're doing X, Y, Z. I basically would, we'd put together a document of here are the references and then the top paragraph would be like, this is why the song is funny. This is the joke we're going for. This is the genre we're going for. This is, the joke is the genre contrasting with the thing. And so I think really laying out idea wise where you're coming from and not just expecting people to like do a thing and understand automatically getting people on the same writing page as you even if they're not writers uh, as important. clear as possible because the really the the thing that's the toughest thing is extra jokes mm. so sometimes sometimes directors show up and they want to add extra jokes either to the scripted part and sometimes that would be camera angles that people think are funny and our show would die if you did that because we cannot carry that tone in our scripted parts or they would add extra jokes to the song. And Rachel's really, and Jack and Adam are very meticulous, but particularly Rachel, because Rachel scripts every song. She is meticulous about To the minute. I want like this. And I want that. I want that. If you add an extra joke, it, it could be a costume thing. It could be a production design thing. That we can't fix in editing. If it's like an extra shot, sometimes it works. But if you make a decision that, can, that I have to live with, Danger. Like you say, like a costume thing. What, Rachel, what were some of the musical numbers or some of the songs over the entire series that came out exactly as you had hoped? Which are the ones that you were proudest of? Oh. The one that you, there was one that you gave almost notes in the, no notes in the edit, and then Kyla cut it. What was it? Oh, God. And I remember you came out and you said, that was pretty much as I had imagined Shit. it. But um, it's not a definitive list. So any ones I, that you love. I'm trying to remember which one that was. Um... All, I mean, 
It's hard because it that means that there are some numbers that I have to think of that didn't come out the way. I mean, every number has eventually eventually becomes what I want. But it's wanted. also the reality um, of making a TV show. Yeah, uh, I guess like the stuff close. that's like, hmm, that was j- that I can't believe happened. Um, I mean, I think that Don't Be a Lawyer uh, came out just just with the sharpness of the joke, just every, everything. I'm really, really proud of that. Um, uh, Math of Love Triangles came out really well, and Stuart McDonald directed that, and he had the idea to get the men lined up. Was it your idea or Stuart's idea to have the men lined up in a chorus singing the chorus? And that ended up actually really helping me. So that's an additional shot we did where I ended up using that in the edit, and I never I would pictured go, it. I would go and look at the episode Stuart has directed, and his music videos are outstanding. And in fact, he did um, Maybe She's Not Such a Heinous Bitch, mm. came at a point where Rachel and I were exhausted, and Stuart has a mil- that's thing. Stuart has a million ideas. Yes. We were going to buy him one hat that said "Hey Rachel" and one that said "Hey Aline" because he's always going. He's always coming up to you and saying, you know, me or her, and he's got a million ideas, and some of them are just outlandish and you can't use them. But there's a million of them, and and maybe she she's not such a heinous bitch. He had the whole thing planned out. Remember that he pitched that to us, and Rachel and Rachel usually has ten million opinions about any, especially the visual stuff. And he pitched it to us, and we were like. That's great. Do that. And then he did. And, he, and it was great. And it's definitely the most high concept video we've done that I didn't come from me or Jack, that it was a director having this amazing concept that worked with the song, that completely supported the writing of the song. And, and Stuart really knows how to direct and, and support the writing and add ideas that support the writing. Yeah, so when we had someone, like we, Carrie Brownstein was supposed to direct this year and she her schedule got away from her and so... We 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 like we swap Stuart right in because it's it's relaxing for us. <laughs> in in the same way, I'd love to hear about um, things you learned about your enormous cast of characters from the terrific actors that you put together. I mean, this ensemble is unbelievable. Um, and you know, oftentimes when you're working on a show, you find an actor do something, and you can't wait to lean on that thing that you didn't expect. What was that for you and the writers for the whole? Group? It's ever. I mean, it's, it's just everyone it's and everything. It's so. I mean, Josh Chan is just completely transformed mm-hmm. from the way we figured it. Yeah, from, from like the skills he had. What was he in the very beginning? I don't think we've ever talked about. He was much more of a that. cipher. He was much more of a, like standard, good-looking guy. But then once we got to know Vinny, um, I mean, first of all, we pitched Vinny like at the whole series. <laughs> via Skype when he got the part and I'll never his face he was just like the most eager fan so he's like a fan of the show but also he can do martial arts and he can dance and he can do all these things and so Josh became like he didn't play football he was on the hip-hop squad when and West Covina happens to have a champion a world champion that actually is very very true to the San Gabriel yeah yeah so but we here's what I want to say about that the actors are amazing and if you see that when you see the concert special after the finale I mean like a lot of them can tap dance. It's just crazy. <laughs> but also, and it's something that Pete said that actually didn't end up in the doc, but I wish had. Rachel, as number one on the call sheet, is the least competitive actor I have ever met. She's so excited for other people to shine. She's so happy to be on set for someone else's scene and be thrilled to pieces. She's the opposite of competitive. So anybody shows up and shows any flair, any talent, any skill, she is like the Mickey Rooney of like, come down to the barn, join the show. She is n- literally, I've, I've never been around a less competitive 
environment for actors. So people are willing to go out and do the silliest, silliest things because they know that they're not going to be judged. And that's something that Pete said. You know, Pete had no musical theater experience and he was a dance captain. And I will also say Cat Burns, our choreographer, same way. Like no one's ever pitted against each other. The, 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 the number that aired last night, you know, she said to me, I have... I have a range from Broadway to never danced in that number. And so the atmosphere of, you know, so people started saying to us, you know, I, I play the ukulele. I don't know if that's helpful. I always, when we hired an actor, I always said, is there something unusual about you that I should know? And Scott had a fake tooth that popped out. So that was in an episode. <laughs> so we really tried to embrace everybody. And here's the thing. A lot of actors are this talented. And they just are, are given, the, our show is unique in that it could showcase all the talented. But like Michael Hyatt, who plays Dr. Copian, she doesn't sing professionally, That's but that's how she can sing. And a lot of actors can do that, and they just are not called upon to do it. Rachel, I think this is an important point um, for anyone who's going to someday have their own show. And whether they're running the show, whether they are first on the call list, you know, the show has such a great, you know, throw up a sheet in the barn and, and put on a show feel to it. How do you set that tone for the actors, for the cast, uh, for the uh, crew, for everyone? Um, I I think what it comes down to, because because the actors on the show have remarked they've been in other situations and sometimes situations with other writer creators who do get competitive. I I think the key is that I see everyone is creating the thing with me. So I don't really have a hierarchy. I, I I don't I don't think, oh well I'm better than you. No, 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 you're in the scene with me. We are creating the scene together, and especially because I spend so much time in post. I know that all that matters is is what's on the screen. Um and I I wanna create I just want the show to be the best. I care about the show and the quality of the show first and foremost, and I think that everybody has skills to lend to it. So I guess that's all I could say is just respecting that everyone is there for a reason. And it's kind of an improv mentality of like, if you're on an improv, if you're in like an improv ensemble, the, the, the key to good improv is, is not to try to be funny. The key is to give your scene partner gifts and ask your scene partner questions because by making them look good, you give yourself more information. And I feel like that mentality extends to working in a creative environment you just and and it's not saying that you can't make decisions because sometimes I would make these hard line decisions and it would be hard to tell people no I have a very specific vision but I never I always acknowledge that there are people out there who have skills that I do not have and will never have and I think it also has to do with our background of like Rachel really had not been in big productions where it was very structured and hierarchical and she was number 28 on this call sheet and treated like shit so she never didn't really wouldn't occur to her to do that. And I am a screenwriter. I've been shit on for a lot of my life. That's not me. That's just being a screenwriter. Yeah. And <laughs> so like when, when, and I'm a very successful screenwriter who's been very lucky and I still get shit on. Um, so our, for example, our room, we hired seven smart people. The first year we were 12 because we had consultants and then we were tw 10. And I didn't really care if it was the writer's assistant or an EP talking. I don't understand that. I, that makes no sense to me. Why would your ideas be better? It doesn't make sense. Like if I read your script and Rachel and I read your script and we think it's funny and we met you and we, th and we think you're funny, why would we want you to not talk or not say that idea? So we had a completely non-hierarchical room where the staff writer and the EPs had an equal 
chance to pitch in and to, to practice, get their legs under them. But, you know, people advanced in our room. And so Rachel and I are both, I don't care whose idea it is. Yeah. And the, the there are so many, if we thought about it, there are so many ideas that came from like, you know, someone in the, in set deck who had a great idea or someone had a great thought or our line producer, Sarah. My assistant for a season has a 5% credit on heavy boobs because she suggested the line. We were in the van. What about, I can't run real far. And I was like, well, that's in. You're going to get some money for this song. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So we were always, we were, we we're, I think we had, you know, Nina, neither of us came from management. Sure. And so we're both kind of anti-management. Um, what I did, what I did know from years of being a screenwriter was how to be diplomatic with, authority because I had been spent many years doing the elaborate, you know, court <laughs> dances of, you know, that you do with executives and like, I know how to do that. And that, that really served us well. And I think that just to say one more thing, I think what was interesting is that I, especially me, I went from having a dead pilot to thinking that I wouldn't be able to afford a house in a couple of years, like I was planning to buy a house, I was like, I'm going to be a Showtime star, and then they, and then it it got rejected, and so I I really mourned the loss of the show, and I went back to doing stuff at UCB for free, and then within a week and a half, everything changed, and I was on stage at City Center announcing the show. So I know that the line between making it and not making it is really thin, and I think it gives me a slight disdain for authority or anyone who's seen as better than or even fame, because I know that that's part of that is luck and arbitrary things that happen in life. So that guy being a CEO or an executive or, oh, that guy's the lead on that television show. Okay. I'm okay. <laughs> cool. Cool for them. I know that they're just a human just like me because I was just a human and now I have a TV show and suddenly automatically I'm put up here, but I was just here like a second ago. I'm just saying we all fart people. If you take nothing else from this, <laughs> Uh, all right, I'm sure you all have questions. I want to make sure we get to your questions. Is there, are there a couple microphones going around? Um, all right, before we get to that, I want to ask uh, you both um, about plots that got away. Uh, things that maybe gained traction in the room or with each other that uh, couldn't quite fit into a season. Valencia's mom. Oh, yeah. We were going to do a reprise of Where's the Bathroom in Spanish. <laughs> to show that her mother, and then that kind of leaked into um, in the song "Forget It" the season about how moms—it's not just Jewish moms who are overbearing. We were talking about all moms. I—that's funny. That's a hard question to answer because I think that it is what it is, and it—it's mm. a snowball, and things stick to it or don't. And so I n never really tried to force things into it. I mean, one of the things that is kind of interesting that you would maybe not expect is that I'm actually more freeform in the writing process than Rachel is. She likes to know exactly what we're doing and where we're going. And a lot of the writers in our room are like this too. They want to know exactly where we're ending. And I am a little bit more like, I have to know when I feel it. And I, so I'm not, actually outlines are not amazing for me. I can't always tell from an outline if it's going to work. So I started to shorten that process to get the writers out of the room as fast as possible because it, they, they would spend a lot of time fussing over the outline and then it would come back and I would be like, this didn't work and you poor thing, I made you sweat over that. So I can't really see it until I feel it. And it's sometimes very frustrating, like, because Rachel would be saying, well, why are you making this choice? Or why are we doing this? Or this is going to change the ending. And I was like, cool, it'll change the ending. And then we'll know when we get there. And that's because I work on my own for 20 years. And so I have a different 
so so for me it's not in the thing because it wasn't in the thing and it didn't it, it wasn't meant to be in the thing so I don't I, I don't think of it as in quite the same way so for me and this is also like my kind of sci-fi brain it, it's interesting because if you hear your work process which is much more like let's go at it by feel and my process which is much more okay let's outline this song let's okay this is going to be the verse this is going to be the bridge you'd think it was switched you'd think well, i'd be the person yeah, who yeah you have like, a slightly more stereo it's again we're being male brain than i do yes that's it's yes to to use the the gender norms that we have it's more male um so i a lot of the plot lines that we've rejected or haven't put in i still think they're canon i still think they exist there's nothing there's nothing we've said on the show that hasn't in my head been like her mom didn't sing that song at one point. We just didn't see it on screen. So like we were going to do a story about Rebecca's grandma being a Holocaust survivor. To me, that still happened. To, to me, Naomi was raised because by... we talked about it. Yeah, Naomi was raised by two survivor parents. We just haven't talked about it in the show, but that still exists in the little universe of this show. Because they're the infinite earth. The manifestation of this is that I don't care about timelines. Oh. And Rachel really does. So like, you'll notice that, that Paula got through law school in two years. No. Kills that's me. Not that right. kills it's me. It's incorrect. And so Rachel would, again, that's uh, not just that Rachel likes things to be nailed, nailed down, but she likes sci-fi. She likes sketch. She likes animation. She likes things that are more stereotypically like dude things. And I really, I mean, it's... It, it goes into rom-coms, it goes into Jane Eyre and Charlotte Bronte and, you know, like it all wanders over there. And so, yeah, Rachel really wants things to be logical in a way that I'm less... I'm like, because for example, Tootsie, which is my favorite movie, there's a 28-hour day in that movie. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, especially because we're building this this large narrative, I think I would be less nitpicky if, if it were if it were just a movie. Um, everyone's like, "When are you going to do a movie?" And we're like, "We made 61 of them, bitch. Calm down." But if we're going to do a, a movie, if we did a sci-fi thing, we would be like wrestling on the floor. You'd be punching me in the face. Yeah, because I believe that continuity. Um, for the world you've built is respect for the world. And also the other thing is I have to play Rebecca. So I can't go into playing Rebecca. I can't go into playing Rebecca not knowing what year it is. She should be like, is it Thursday or Friday? I was like, I don't know. It doesn't matter. But there is something to not, that. Yeah. There's something to the push and pull of that that makes for a good partnership. At, well, and the show really, the, the tone of the show comes from Aline and I being in many ways different people. I mean, we're slowly becoming more similar as I <laughs> wear more fashion forward things. <laughs> she's laughing because I showed up and she's like, what is this? The looks. All right, let's um, take some questions. Yeah. Yes, let's get some questions. Um, yes, you right here in the front and then this person, it will be next. Hi, um, I just, um, I really want to first off thank you guys for creating this show. Um, I also have BPD and I've never, it's really not talked about a lot and there's not a lot of research, but the fact that you guys have created a show that has a character who struggled with it and has similar struggles just means so much to me and I've never identified with the character so much, so thank you for that. I'm also a big theater nerd. Um, yeah, uh, my question, um, so I go to school in Claremont, which is in the Inland Empire, so all of the jokes are... I understand all of them, and you don't. There's no TV shows that take place in the Inland Empire. They're all in LA, and I'm just wondering how you guys chose West Covina, and how you guys, what type of research you did to get so accurate of references to a place that not many people really know about. Is anyone here from New Jersey? Is anyone here from Bergen County? 
Well, right next to it. When okay. So when you live, I lived in, in, in Bergen County is like a bunch of little towns that are kind of the same and in a string. Like what's the difference between Bergenfield and North Bergen and Waldwick and Allendale? And they're all the fucking same. They're just strung together. And that's what I love about the suburbs is like, it's all, as Rachel says, it's like, in, in Southern California, it's like the many cultures of the world come together to eat at the same Applebee's. And having grown up in the suburbs, I really love that. And the SoCal, Rachel's a SoCal girl, so that, that really affected it. Yeah, so I, so I grew up here, and I think that there are certain things when we started talking about the show and it being here, that as we got to talking, we talked about <clears throat> the gap of how Hollywood usually portrays Southern California. And then also the gap of what my childhood was like versus Aline's. And I think that you don't realize when you grow up here how, quote unquote, diverse it is until you talk to other people. I mean, I use the example of my senior year, our homecoming queen was Japanese and our homecoming king was Chinese. And I don't ever, I don't remember a second of, of like that. I just remember, yeah, it should have been Mika and George. Cool. It, and so that's just what growing up in Southern California is really like. Um, and West Covina is partially based on the, partially. Uh, in high school, um, <laughs> there was uh, this guy who um, came to um, be the music director for my high school musicals. Um, he was like, he was only like two years older, but he was like a prodigy. And he, um, and he lived in Glendora, which is right next to West Covina. And so I was like, um, we like had like kind of a secret thing, whatever. And I would um, try to find excuses to visit him in Glendora. And so when we were talking about just silly obsession in general, I was like, oh, it was so funny because I would, I begun to see the Inland Empire and the San Gabriel Valley as like, Eden because he was there you know when you're obsessed with someone it's like you want to sniff their clothes you want to sniff their hometown and she and I but I think that in telling you I was like oh yeah he's from this place like West Covina just because that's a funnier word and she, and you were like oh the show has to take place in West Covina what yeah, a perfect well, I town because we, we I remember spitting because when I remember when Rachel was talking about Glendora Glendora would have worked great for it sounds like a magical kingdom <laughs> and I think we were both it would have been a joke on a joke if she had been longing to Glendora, but Covina sounds to me like one of these dumb New Jersey towns. Sorry, like Wyckoff. It's a different derivation, um, but like one of those random, you know, made up names without character. Yeah, I mean, New Jersey. A lot of some of them are, um, you know, based on sort of Indian transliterations. But in Covina is literally made up a made up word and it just has the you know it has a k sound so it's funny and also just one more thing about growing up in california that i think really influenced the show is it's actually more rare than you think to find people who are writing in the industry working in the industry who are from southern california who didn't grow up in an entertainment family so a lot of the people who are working in california they went to you know brentwood crossroads like they they grew up in these rich families and entertainment. I didn't. My dad's a lawyer and my mom like stayed at home. And so, and I went to public school. And so I hadn't seen, that's my Southern California. And my grandparents lived in Torrance. So I spent like a lot of time in Torrance and I'd never seen where I grew up and what that was like portrayed. So I think that that gap of honestly, that class gap that we usually have in, in Hollywood is important. Yeah, and the cultural background gap as well, because we yeah. we went out of our we've always tried to accurately reflect the community, and that's just because when you're a writer and you're specific, you you find out what's the real. Absolutely. Um, yes. Yeah, so there's a question over here, and then let's get the person right behind you. Hi. Um, my question is: so, as I understand, you pitched to the network directly, and um, 
you were able to maintain being the showrunner on your own show that you created. Um, I'm in a situation that I created something and people tell me, oh, you're never going to be a showrunner because you're not, you know, a big name, right? Um, and you have to attach a showrunner to your project, like a yep. bigger name. Um, yep. How did you go about... You, you probably do. I mean, I, yeah. was, I was a big name. Yes. You know, I had $800 million worth of box yeah, office yeah. and been run a write, run, you know, been nominated for a Writers Guild Award. I, I was a big name. So when I went yes. into the rooms, they were already predisposed to buy it, which Rachel kept being very shocked by. And mm -hmm. somebody tried to, somebody did buy it in the room, I think having half listened to it because I was there. And so even though I hadn't, and I had run some pilots years ago. So even though I hadn't run a show, I think people kind of knew that I could. And then I insisted on making Rachel an executive producer so that she would be elevated in that way. But people knew, you know, and I'm old. -er. Yeah. So that helped. Um, you might need a showrunner. And there's nothing mm -hmm. wrong with that. There is nothing wrong with that. Totally. There is nothing wrong with... Just be careful when you meet those folks. Mm -hmm. just, just make sure... I, I am... I think non-executive producers... Non-writing executive producers is some, somewhat of a dicey business. Uh, I have a fear of them. Some are wonderful... But but some are just not writers, and you you might never speak the same language. But if you have a show and they want you to have a showrunner, just say, "Can I meet five people?" Yeah. All and right. you'll and and really you follow your bit. gut. Mm -hmm. Follow your gut, and the person should be saying to you, "I love your pitch. I love." I didn't hire any writer that didn't. If you came in to interview, not just for the writing, anything on the show, in the first sentence you said was not, "I love Rachel Bloom, and I saw all her videos." Mm -hmm. You need fans. You want fans. Mm -hmm. Red flag in any interview I've I've realized is if someone goes in and starts immediately talking about how they've been shafted and fucked over for jobs, you don't want to work with that person because two things. If the first thing you can think of in a job, look, we all think we've been shafted. We all think we've been fucked over. <laughs> Some of us haven't fucked have. over. <laughs> but if you go into a job interview and the first thing you talk about is how you think the world has fucked you over. That's a kind of victim narrative that I think is is dan dangerous in a professional environment. And B, it means that they're looking for this to be the thing where they don't get fucked over, and they're gonna they're gonna usurp you, right? Especially if it's someone who is technically higher up in the business, they'll just try to take the show from you. And so I think those are some actually important red flags to judge a book by its cover on. Yeah. And would you recommend to pitch directly to the networks or um, I'm in the process pitching or I pitch to a couple of um, bigger companies and also approach you mean some... studios or production companies? Uh, production companies and um, some A-list directors to get them as a showrunner or should I go directly to the network now and see what they offer, what kind of showrunners they offer? Uh. It's hard to say. Everything will be a little bit different, um, and you can attract collaborators. Uh, I mean, a director might be helpful, but they're they're not going to be a showrunner probably, unless they're really a producing director. But it kind of depends. I mean, I always went like when I was doing TV, um, we we pretty much just went to the network. But when I was, I did pilots. I shot three pilots when I was Rachel's age, between the ages of twenty five and thirty, and with a partner and they always gave us showrunners and you know, some of them were great and lifelong friends of mine and some of them were assassins and psychopaths. Um, so, but I never got a choice. And if I had to do it again, I would say, okay, she, you know, we're happy to have someone, but I got to meet three people or five people. Cause you'll know in your soul, whether this person has your back. Okay. We're, you. we're getting in the weeds here. Uh, yeah, there was someone over here. 
Okay. Um, so during the Immaculate Conception of this show, you were very certain of having four seasons. How did that magical number come about? Who says it was immaculate? <laughs> you don't know what we did. You don't know what we do. <laughs> I have sources. Um, what would have happened if the show was cancelled after season one or the network said, we've greenlit season five? Oh, so two. So it's two questions. What would have happened if... It's a sliding door. Either you, we would have had to end it at season one. Well, it would have ended. Season one is a good ending. Season one's a I'd good ending. I'd here for you. Great, done. Yeah, I think that's it would have just been, been a fine. good Freaks and Geeks kind of cult right. 18 episodes. We, we, told Mark, we told Mark Pedowitz we're, we're going to do four. Mm-hmm. And you know what? We're the lowest rated show on network, so they were fine. <laughs> uh, yeah, is there someone on this side? Anyone you like. You have the microphone. I'm going to ask you all to keep these questions to one sentence, please, because I do want to get as many of you yeah, as And this we can. gentleman in the front has been had his hand up every single time, so let's do Thank him you. next. Yeah. Uh, so basically, my question is just about, so you mentioned having um, sort of more free, like creative freedom on this show. What, what would you recommend for something like after that where you don't have that freedom? What would you take from this to kind of hone in on? That that didn't make sense. I apologize. Well, here's what I'll say: is is whatever you're working on, you have to basically see whatever restrictions you have as a as a gift. Um, this show, sure, we had creative freedom, but this was a dirty show that then had to fit on a network. So we actually had a lot of uh, creative restrictions in that we just couldn't do certain things. And what you do is, again, it's kind of an improv mentality. In improv, there are no mistakes. There is not a perfect version of the scene. The scene is what you make of it. And so wherever you are, if there are creative limitations, yes and those. Take those in. It's the way it was always meant to be. Let it infuse the work because if you try to fight some natural restrictions, it's just that the work is going to be bad. And so if you're, if you're a four hire, you know, if you're working on a script for a studio and you're a four hire, you got to take in their notes because they're the ones who hired you and you just have to make the best with, of what you have. I will say that I, as a young writer, I, I eventually developed a policy, which is I won't ruin it myself. You own it. If you want to ruin it, you do it. But I'm not going to be there for it. So I would politely bow out of things when I felt like we're really in a different spot. And that happened frequently. And one of them was 27 Dresses. I worked on it for two years. And then the producer, who I'd gotten pretty close to, I just got to a point where I had they were supposed to pay me again. And I said, look, we just don't see this movie the same way. And I don't want to be Jewishly fighting with you for another two years you really believe in your vision, go make it. And so four years later or something, he came back to me having gotten it green lit and I came back on and he said, okay, you're back. You can't change your structure. It was the same. I mean, and, and he, we, it had been rewritten three times by really good writers, by the way. So it came back with some great jokes in it, but he wanted, he did not want to change the structure of that movie. And so even the writers who rewrote it, he would not let them change the structure of that movie. So when it came back, he was like, this is a structure. It's your structure pretty much. Go do it. And I had that shackle, and it's what Rachel said. And then in that, I tried to inhabit it. But I did develop a policy because as a young writer, sometimes you get awful notes, and I would do them, and I would ruin my own thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
Hello, uh, this is Juan Carlos Flores from Mexico. I moved to Glendora, and yeah, it's not as magical. <laughs> and I taught uh, dancing for children at Guescovina, so I feel so related you to you. You actually might know this guy, but anyway, go on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I feel so related to you in the, uh, another country, of course, uh, as a writer and, 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 and as an actor. So if you have this, this project that you know it's worth it, I just want to know how did you find the right people? How did you find the team? How, how was it for you? Uh, can you clarify? Well, I, I think when you're creating, and a lot of us have this, right? When you're creating a thing, you're sitting in your room, you're writing a thing, you're putting up videos, whatever it is, how are you finding... How are you getting that to the next step? What was it for you? How did you get... Well, I, mean, I mean, this <laughs> is a bad... It's a, yeah, yeah. Really bad. It's not a great example because she found my internet videos online. We had a blind date and then we just started writing together and we got in the right rooms because we were with CBS and also she's Aline Brosh McKenna. Um, that's... That's what I will say. Yeah. Rachel was going to be famous and successful no matter when. <laughs> but what happens with female comedians, they have to work their way through the system for 10, 15 years. So they have to be on, this is why I'm so excited that A.D. Bryant has a hit. Mm. They have to be on SNL for 10 years or they have to be on another sitcom for 10 years and they don't get to do their show until they're 35, they're 38. And so look at Lena Dunham. She just made her own freaking movie and Rachel Bloom made her own videos. And so we were able to, I was able to find her work. Jenny Connor was able to find Lena's movie in an unmediated fashion because those people made their own stuff, make it and put it up yeah. and somebody will find it. And I'm telling you, I was the, you know, I'm a great shopper. I happened to get there early and the Rachel Bloom had not been taken yet and I snapped <laughs> it up. But somebody was going to. But the thing I'm excited about is that we made a bona fide female tour de force, you know, comedy star in her 20s and not in her late 30s. And now there's a world of opportunities for Miss Rachel now that she's in her 30s. I don't know that Hollywood deserves her. I don't know if they have anything that's good enough for her. But I do know that, like, she has the ability to do... What Seth Rogen does, what Judd Apatow does, she has the ability to do that, and God bless, she's going to be able to do it when she's young. And so make your stuff, put it up, and somebody will find you. Yeah. All right, we have last question right here, please. So my question is, um, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly new to the show, admittedly, but I love it. And I love how you incorporate the music into it. I'm, I'm a huge music fan, and that's not something you really see like in comedy. Like, a, like I've never really seen like the whole just side out and do a whole musical production. I love that. Like, where do you find not only, like, the... the how do you incorporate that? Like, you know, how do you how do you keep the audience audience engaged while, you know, basically stepping off and doing something totally different? Because that is something that's different. That's me. a great question, Rachel. Uh, oh, how do you keep them engaged because the songs are kind of like a stasis in the plot? You make the songs as good as possible. And you make the songs either as funny as possible, if it's a comedy song, if it's heightening the emotion, you you hook into the emotion. I mean, I think that songs, naturally, music emotionally hooks us. So even if you're saying just the, the darkest jokes, there's still a moment that heightens the emotion, because that's the purpose of musical theater. M musicals are meant to, I mean, there's an old saying, uh, when the emotion is too strong to speak, you sing, and when the emotion is too strong to sing, you dance. And so that, that's why the show's a musical. It's to uh, zoom in on emotional moments and blow those out and to make you feel. I just want to get, get this lady right. was literally dying yeah, we when we we'll couldn't get to, get to her. Yeah, I'm, I'm, Go ahead, ask quickly. 
I'm sorry. A distraction. So I come from musical theater where musicals are part of the storytelling. So for me, it's never a side a distraction. And we're not also the type of show where... Um, we make musical numbers out of like, why is this toothbrush so dirty? Dirty toothbrush, dirty toothbrush. Everything has to come from the plot and the emotion. Um, so we're not doing a, a show and then with like little musical comedy numbers on the side as kind of distractions. Ideally, the, the hardest part of, of writing the show was finding that very, very fine line of how does this both uh, f- serve to enlighten you about some element of the character, the story, and lift out as a good song on it in its own merits. That's... Yeah. yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> Rachel, I love what you said about respecting the rules of the world, and um, I wanted just to have you elaborate a little bit on like how else you inform the rules of the world of this show. What does that mean, rules of the world? So even transitioning into the songs, for example, it's a great question. So that's so that was actually the hardest thing we've had to figure out is how do we get into the songs, and and that relates to the rules of the world because these songs are not happening; they are in someone's point of view, nine times out of 10, they're in Rebecca's point of view. And so that's why you see every, every transition, we zoom in on my eyes, there's some sort of shift because we are logically consistent. And Aline is especially very allergic to any musical um, in television or film where someone's just here and then they start singing and the world doesn't change because it's why, why, what's the logic? Is the singing really happening or is so it not? Rachel showed me there was a there was a pilot that had been made that was a musical, and Rachel was like, "Well, here's an example of something someone did. We put it on. It played for forty seconds, and I was like, "Nope, <laughs> I literally I I can't." <laughs> but I think, and I think that speaks to someone who's not inherently a musical theater fangirl who's like, if I'm going to enjoy a musical, I want to know why it's a musical. And I think that a lot of musical theater people take whatever it is for granted because, oh, well, it's a musical, that's what you do. But I think that, that it creates sometimes a laziness and an inconsistency in the world where it was like, well, you just had this person singing and they, they were flying through the air and now they're singing a cover and it seems to actually be existing in the world but people kind of know like I just that inconsistency of like the laziness that sometimes comes with people doing musicals where it's like it's a musical who cares what the world is who cares if it's real or not it's like you but that's just bad writing so 99% of the song, times the songs were in someone's imagination so we push into someone's eyes or someone spins around it's in their imagination and their sketches and they can, le- li- they can lift out and be sketches when you're watching a traditional musical, sometimes it's just like we're singing about, like we're knitting, and then we're singing about knitting, and I and there's nothing inherently <laughs> funny or entertaining about the knitting. But for me, I loved Rachel's Rachel's videos showed me what that you could do musical things that were funny and obviously lots of people do musical sketches, SNL or whoever. Uh, but what Rachel had inside of her comedy musical pieces was character their character you could make a movie out of every single one of them and that's what i to, to that you could develop a character without having the character talk about itself and doing a different joke but it's giving you insight into the character that was the thing that i saw in rachel's thing that i latched onto because i truly have a very profound allergy to things where they're singing for no reason and it's that the world has not changed and no one's reacting is I don't you know what I'm talking about. I don't know what is happening. <laughs> All right. A couple of things before we wrap up. Um, what's next? For well, the, the finale's on Friday, April 5th, followed yes. by the concert special. Can't wait to see. You can go watch the documentary on CWC. It's called, oh, my God, I think it's over. 
Um, and it is mildly spoilery. So I would say it's very spoilery if I were Some people think it's mildly, some people think it's <laughs> CW wanted to release it before the finale, uh, so that's why it's up before the finale. If I had had my full druthers, it wouldn't have been up until the finale aired. I think it's fine. A lot of people have said that it didn't spoil. It doesn't tell you what happens in the end of the show, but if you want to know more about our process, it's, it's pretty. So those three things you can consume coming up and then um, we still have tickets for Radio City yeah. uh, so the cast and I we love performing live we're doing Radio City May 14th and 15th I believe there are still tickets available on the 15th if anyone's going to be in New York that's great um, what do you each and together uh, or together hope the legacy of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend will be Sh- uh, showing how to do um musicals want to, to further a narrative. I mean, a, an extended original musical narrative. I mean, I think it's the longest narrative musical that's ever been done, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, well, g- I don't count Glee because it's covers. Well, original, yeah. I mean, these were... <laughs> Listen, you're off the air. You don't have to be I nice just anymore. don't... I'm sorry when shows have covers. <laughs> I'm just like, yeah, you're a musical show, but, like, you didn't write the songs, and that's the hardest part. Um... You know, for me, it's it's hard for me to... I think that's for others to say. I always remember going to lunch with someone and with a friend of mine and this girl we were having lunch with said, I'm so pretty. And <laughs> my friend turned to me and goes, I think others will be the judge of that. Um, so I, I feel like we've gotten... Um, I just remember the look on her face when she said that. And I, you know what? I think it's great that that girl thinks she's pretty. And, and when I think of the show, I'm so proud of it. And I love so much about it. It's not everyone's cup of tea. I think we won't know how we will be remembered for years. I have spent more time in the last year talking about Devil Wears Prada and 27 Dresses than I did for, I mean, it was like they just kept, I kept doing retrospective pieces and and then people are still fighting about Andy's friends on Devil Wears Prada and you just don't know what things are going to last and what things are going to connect with people and what things are going to live on and, you know, there's all these like 12-year-olds who watch Friends every night and you don't, you know, what's one of the it's a big lottery ticket that you buy to be culturally relevant and you don't know what that is. I do believe that the show will be remembered for uh, launching Rachel and that when Rachel's being honored at Kenny Center Honors and she totters out in her heels and she's 75 and, um, and she sings whatever that, that, you know, that, that, that's what, that's what it will be. Totters out. Yeah. That's I'll what, be drunk. <laughs> and that's what I think, well, we wheel you out for your SAG award. Um, I think that's one of the things that people will remember because, you know, um, it's funny, my husband, who's like, these are not genres he's a fan of, rom-coms or musicals or anything, and he's a musician in part-time. He's so profoundly impressed by Rachel. And he, tr- I can't explain to you the extent to which he does not give shit about this stuff. And every time, like well, the first time we saw Rachel live, he, 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 turned to me and he was like that's Bette Midler that's Bette Midler and when you see this concert special if you ever get a chance to see Rachel live I've never seen anyone be more present and more funny and connect better to an audience and she can do everything you know and she can write and she can write songs and she can perform and she can sing she's hysterically funny she can tap dance I mean I and I just think again I just I hope we deserve her that's what I've been saying that to her since we met I just know that, like, you know, a man who's like a six out of ten talent-wise, will people will really ha- stick a hand down to help him, and, and there's lots for them. And you know, women by and large have to make their own shit to get it out there. 
I want Rachel to kind of like bob in the waters of the world right now and see what we have for her and just like get some time to rest and like be with her husband and her dog. I hope there's good shit out there for her. I just, I just know from my experience in the business that there's a lot of like, you know, being somebody's wife in a comedy movie and being like, what are you doing? You know? And I just, I hope we have better shit for her, but if we don't, she'll make it. Let me say as one of the uh, others who is allowed to talk about the show, cause I'm not involved as, and as someone who makes things uh, for a living to see this show every week. It's the show that is ambitious and, um, nuanced and really funny, uh, and is about character. Um, it's an inspiration. It really is. Um, so thank you for that. I, I think that will be the legacy of the show. If we get to talk about one, how really incredible the show was and all the work that you all put into it, how it absolutely has paid off in spades. Thank you so much to Rachel Bloom. Thanks to Aline Brosh McKenna. Thank you, Ben. Thank, thank you all guys. for being here. Forever. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.